and we see this all the time. My friend Peter, what did he say was the book that made him ask the question that finally got him saved at some point later? The Last Temptation of Christ. It's obviously not telling. Yeah. That's not scripture. Those are man's words. Those are a lot of man's words. Holy Spirit seems to use them. Yeah, they're definitely being used. So, again, word of God, word of man. What do you mean? What do you mean? What again? This is where I'm barking. What constitutes the tell them look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. Uh, here with Daniel. I still don't have an intro phrase, um, but we're we're figuring that out, as I've said for four weeks. So <laughs> uh, we actually need to. We just spent, gosh, we spent like an hour and a half, just maybe two. How long? Yeah, probably about an hour and a half. Yeah, just talking about uh, plans for the future. So be prepared this summer, especially. Yeah, we got some good stuff coming. But we should probably work on an intro too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or we could just forego a phrase. But I like kind of having a phrase because it succinctly yeah. gives the mission statement more or less. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> anyway, we've been on a mission recently uh, to expose the literary nature of the Bible. Uh, started by talking about interpretation as art with Augustine which was, I really listened to that episode recently, actually. I thought it was a really fun time. I love all the examples we used, and I used it in conversation with some friends over Easter, actually. So that was fun. A uh, little bit of personal payoff for all the work. Um, and then we've moved on to talk about the nature of, uh, with, that, with that episode, in particular, intertextuality of the Bible. Then we talked largely about some of the purposes of literature. Lewis seeing literature as a lens through which to view the world and then you make judgment on the truth of that lens and how it corresponds to reality uh, which again you could always ask the question what do you mean by reality right this is what john marsh said to me earlier and i was like get out of here stop it i thought this was so good but we need to discuss this so he might come on and we can have that discussion at some point anyway um then we've been arguing about the, with that, the literary nature of the Bible and how the Bible is doing art and to interpret the Bible well, we need to have an eye for the artistic. And then now we are getting into conversations about uh, the scriptures themselves. So Bible as art, Bible doing art, literary interpretation, literary interpretation of the scriptures, what does it mean for the Bible to be literature? How does that, with our last episode, how does that affect how we think about inspiration of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible? And then today we are talking more so about interpretation or interpretation methods for reading the Bible. And specifically today, we are going to critique a view that says something like, all I need is the Holy Spirit 
to help me interpret the Bible, which I think is um, fairly horrendous. And again, just as I would say about the debate about inerrancy, completely, not completely unhelpful, but largely unhelpful frame for getting meaning out of the Bible. Uh, and I think largely because it does, it makes the Bible into something like a self-help book. How do I derive meaning for me to navigate in the world from the scriptures? And I don't mishear what I'm saying. It's obviously doing those things. And even to use Petersonian language. Okay, so maybe the Bible isn't saying explicit truths about the physical world. Maybe it has other truths about how to act in the world. I think it's definitely doing this. Uh, but then to say that the only thing you need to derive those meanings, even those specific meanings from the Bible, is only the Holy Spirit. I don't know. It just feels icky to me. Dan, do you have any comments? <clears throat> I've mentioned several times um, on the pod. I grew up Pentecostal, um, AG, and I still would consider myself in a lot of those veins. Um, but I, I have never thought that just the idea of listening to the Holy Spirit is a good way of constructing biblical interpretation. Um, and I don't think it's a biblical way of constructing biblical interpretation, which we'll get into later. Um, but yeah, I think the worst. Um, it's just the conservative version of reader response. It is. It is. Right. You Not necessarily for the group as you would do in Bible study. Yeah. What did you get out of this passage? But as you shit, as oh my gosh, Freudian slips and um, uh, mashing together of words when you don't speak clearly. Uh, as you sit and read in the morning, uh, the basic question becomes something like, I, I'll critique it again. I mentioned this kind of in passing in our conversation about literal meaning in the Bible. When I said the Bible can, for some people, become my inspiration for the day or my duty for the day, and that comes out in something like the SOAP method, S-O-A-P, scripture, observation, application, and prayer literally what that is so what is the scripture for the day today it is mark 11 observation what is happening in the text well jesus does a few things he does some really weird things he curses a fig tree and clears the temple and in some way mark seems to think those are connected because he splits up the story differently than other gospel writers do but that's a literary interpretation but observation what's what's just generally happening in the passage application how does this apply to me 
in prayer. Dear God, please, in your word today, it said, da-da-da-da-da. Help me to apply whatever this is to my life. Amen. I'm not saying that praying for God to help you live out the scriptures is a bad thing. All I'm critiquing is that attitude of, well, I'm just going to read this chapter, and then there's something in there for me to apply. Okay, are you reading Genesis 38 and 39? Like, are you going to go sleep with your daughter-in-law? Or is the application to not, uh, the application would be to not do something like that, obviously. Um, it's like very surface interpretation that would be like, don't succumb to the lust of my eyes, right? Because I might really do something I don't want to do. But I don't even, sure, that might be the point of the story, but I don't even know if that's the point of the story. It might you know? be a sub point. I think, so, that, I think that's definitely a, an ethic you can derive from that story. But I right. think the story is saying a lot more than that. And I mean, to reference the episode you did on that whole section, um, was uh, reading the Bible as fiction, mm -hmm. was it? Yeah. Yeah, the surface level reading would be, yeah, don't go have sex with your, your daughter-in-law. Like th that's that would be a pretty darn good application, right? Um, a better application would be when you see that these two things are literarily juxtaposed against each other and you understand that Judah was being the victim of the very thing that he did in the past. And this whole literary structure has shaped a critique of his actions that then changes the way he behaves in the future. Right. That is a much fuller interpretation of observe, like observations, right. Within the soap method. Right. And that, then yeah. application. And you can very well pray about that. Right. And the soap method isn't flawed in and of itself. It's yeah. the way in which what I'm critiquing is how into... it's been said from the yeah. pulpit for me and yep. how many people I know have just been, I keep my journal and every, mm -hmm. again, I'm not saying these are bad things. Yeah. I may be a worse Christian because I don't do these things. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think I'm worse because I don't journal as much as I think I should. Exactly. But again, you're offering a critique that even answer, ask the question, wait, hang on. Why is this story after that story. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. What I'm assuming authorial intent. I'm assuming the Bible was doing something artistic, mm -hmm. you know? Um, what did Wright say? The only way to write is collection and organization. Mm -hmm. So obviously the organization has something to do with it. The point is, as Tim will critique, the Bible isn't your grab book, your grab bag of like inspirational quotes for the day. You know, part yeah. of the classic example, this would be something like Jeremiah 29, 11 or Philippians 4, 13. You know, I know the plans I have for you. Oh, really? Plans of uh, exile and destruction? For 70 years. I can do all things. Oh, you mean like be rich and be poor and be shipwrecked and be beaten? Yeah. And almost die, be left for dead for the gospel? 
Oh, really, Steph Curry? That's really what you mean when you put that on your shoes? That's really what you mean? Yeah. Or you mean I can make some three pointers? Like, yeah. And I love Steph Curry. I think he's a great guy. I would, yeah. I would never knock his. I think he's in, especially in the world in which he lives, he's a pretty upstanding Christian dude. Yeah. But these are just the ways which are, even our contemporary Christian culture just uses mm-hmm. these things as, oh, that's my, that's how I'm going to apply that verse. And it's like, I don't, I don't know, man, that, that just doesn't seem to cut it. Like that doesn't seem it, that ain't it chief, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'll, I would say something here cause I think it could fit, but I think it needs a lot more context. And so I'm going to say it at the end. Mm-hmm. But when I go on my rant at the end for all of our listeners, think back to this moment, because this, this thing with Steph Curry and um, the way we react to the predominant Christian culture as two people who are in seminary, just coming off the episodes yes. that we did of yes. cynicism and loneliness, loneliness, being in seminary. I'm going to talk about those again at the end. Mm-hmm. Think back to this moment because we're reacting a lot differently to the Christian culture around us with this soap method and with these big cultural flashpoint verses than a lot of people. Yeah, are. and just walk and in Hobby Lobby, dude. Like, yeah, Hobby Lobby what or is Lifeway it? or Mordell's. Yeah. And so the reason that we react this way, I think, is because of the way we're trained in seminary yeah yeah yeah. Um, and the way that the christian culture predominantly doesn't actually function the way we're trained as pastoral leaders in seminary Um, so again i'll stop there before i give my whole rant that i want to give later after we've laid some more groundwork Um, and yeah it's all shut up yeah my only point is that and all that cynicism, hopefully what you could deduce is I'm critiquing this thing that says the Bible is going to directly speak to me every time I open it. And who's going to illuminate what that means is the Holy Spirit. And the greater danger of that's what I need. All I need is my Bible and the Holy Spirit, and that's good enough for me. There's some wacky pastors I can show you that say that exact thing from the pulpit, which we'll see here in a minute. And what's super funny is, and we'll get into this in a minute, they're the people of the early church that those wacky pastors love to refer to when it comes to certain doctrines also critique that perspective. Uh, I'm going to read some stuff later from, you guessed it, Augustine. Um, if anyone at this point is surprised that I'm reading Augustine, then um, you got another like thing coming, I Dune. guess. Yeah, you reading Dune and me reading Augustine. Um, but and I'm going to get a Tarantino reference in here somewhere. Yeah, you are. Um, I'll work it in somehow. Yeah, but <laughs> anyway, um, that's not how biblical interpretation is done well. And that's yeah. never been what the top leaders of the church have thought is good biblical interpretation from basically the dawn of the church. And I hope to prove that today. Yeah. 
Okay, I think that's enough preamble yeah. and enough ranting. So let's get started. Okay, so we are going to react first to a video by a guy named Ben S. His full name is Ben Stanhope. And I first found out about him because he got interviewed by, uh, I think his name's Mike from Inspiring Philosophy, uh, who does apologetics and biblical interpretation on YouTube. Great channel. Go check them out. Yeah, I will link their original the conversation that I saw on here in the description. And it was a conversation about his book, Ben's book, Misinterpreting Genesis, How the Creation Museum Misunderstands the Ancient Near East Con Context of the Bible. That was really difficult to read in reverse. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, found, I saw their interview, heard about the book. I was like, that's really interesting. Watched the interview, bought the book. Haven't read the book yet. Sorry, Ben. Maybe one day when I read the book, we'll have you on and we can discuss the book because I think it's very interesting. Uh, then I found out through the interview and through his channel, he's a big Heiser fan. So that was a nice point of connection. Uh, he has a great Heiser meme that I made you watch the other day. So yeah, it was funny. It was that great. was funny. Uh, absurdist comedy to its maximum, but yeah. certain times I enjoy that. Yeah. But anyway, this video especially that we're going to react to is called uh, Christian anti-intellectualism anti and the role of the Holy Spirit in biblical interpretation. So that's just some preamble to who this guy is, why I know about him, and why we're watching him. I've been in my grad thesis at Hamburg University in Germany, and since it will become necessary for the groundwork of this channel when I return to the U.S. and start producing content again, I believe it is time to share the most important idea that I've ever encountered in relation to Bible study. For me personally, I can't recall any concept that more dramatically sharpened my skill at biblical interpretation, literally overnight. What I'm talking about regards the following question. What is the Holy Spirit's role in interpretation? Now, I have found that most Christians assume part of the Holy Spirit's role is to function for the believer as their Bible commentary. I can't tell you how many times I've point-blank heard pastors teach this. Throw out all commentaries. Amen. Throw out all study Bibles. You know, get just the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit comment on it. But, and let preachers, Spirit-filled preachers comment on it. But not books made by man to comment on it and to guide you. You should have a private Bible time where it's just you and the Lord and no one else. Time out, time out, time hang out. On, hang on, hang on. Whew, my oh blood my pressure God. just rose. <laughs> so, I, I was going to try to hold this off until later, and I didn't want to pause the video that, that quickly. We haven't even made it a minute in. <laughs> But, um, so yeah, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Hang on, we gotta go. <laughs> Cause he literally contradicts himself as he's inserting a parenthetical phrase. <laughs> he says, yeah, I heard it too. <laughs> you know, get just the word of God and let the Holy spirit comment on it, but, and let preachers. I'm like, so let, nope. just get you in the Bible, let the Holy Spirit comment on it, but also preachers. Cause I'm one of those and my words have to be important too. So like, let yeah. me speak into your life. Yeah. So, and then he goes, but not books and stuff written by man. Well, who are you preaching about? You're a dude. Yeah. Preaching about the word of God, giving your interpretation, which could be right or wrong. Yeah. Hypothetically. I think he's wrong most of the time, by the way. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but even within that statement, Oh, let Holy Spirit fill preachers, not those guys that write books. Those guys are too important. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. 
you know, John Piper's, you know, never been filled with the spirit a day in his life. Look at how many books he's written. That's just a indication of the fact that he's not filled, that he's just earthly and wants to appeal to people and make money because he writes books. Yeah. Oh, but then no, if they're saying it, not writing it down, that makes a difference. Yeah. Spirit filled preachers. Yeah. Coming on the word of God. Well, I love how that was also part of his, 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 uh, Precondition, spirit. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Again, a bunch of like, I go to a Pentecostal school. You grew up Pentecostal. Yeah. Like for real. What do you mean? Do you mean speaking in tongues? Because I don't believe in uh, tongues as initial evidence, by the way, which is why the AG would never <laughs> make me a pastor, which is fine. I'm yeah. not here to become one. It's just, and I've even talked about this with people at my school, with professors who yeah. are dogging on the fact that they have currently made that one of the highest markers of people becoming a pastor, giving them their credentials within the AG was basically the conversation they were having. My professor and another pastor who's a married, her and her husband pastor of church. Um, again, women in ministry will get there one day. I know people are commenting about that literally on some of my videos. Um, we keep referencing that as though it's not a big thing and then we'll get to it later and we never get to it later. <laughs> anyway, no, but they were talking and they were, they, they were basically saying, yeah, so she, she was even talking about how she sits in on the council for her district to interview potential pastors and she, she said, yeah, it seems like once I answer the question about when did you first speak in tongues, they're like, good to go. And it's like it, you know? Now, this is a lot of insider baseball that it might not be good to give out, but there, there it is, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just his Holy Spirit-filled preachers, not the ones that write books because they're too worldly, but Spirit-filled preachers can comment on the Word of God. But just have you and the Word of God by itself have time for that. Oh, and make sure I'm, I have room there too. So he's discrediting what he's saying in his comment to credit himself. Yeah. So to take that a step further, I love the statement he made. And this is something I was probably going to bring up later, but now is a good a time as any, maybe even better. Um, You and your Bible and the Holy Spirit. What is your Bible? It's a multi-thousand-year-old document written in another language, translated by man and, and women, men and women, right? Committees, usually. Com- usually committees or committees built of committees, mm-hmm. depending on the translation and the extent that they went through. And I even know professors that have like sat on the committee for, say, ESV translations. Yep. And they'll say, yeah, 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 I really like how we translated that section here. But if you look at how we translated this thing over here in Judges, I really didn't agree with that translation. But I guess we had to go with it because it was part of the board. And depending on the person that you talk to that was on the committee, they may disagree because the committee has to vote, right? Mm -hmm. And what's super interesting, it was literally just yesterday. I was sitting in Greek class and um, one of my fellow students asked... um, a question about a translation of a certain word. And we had a very long conversation about translations and things like that. And my professor made a statement that I've, I've known for a while, but I've, this is the second language I've studied. A lot of my classmates is their first. 
So I've kind of been through the wash before they're kind of just coming out of it um, for the first time. And the, well, the statement he made to them, which when it was first made to me about a year ago, it changed the way I viewed things. Now it changed the way they viewed things. But what he said was, um, as, as a scholar who would not necessarily be working with translations, but be working with words and what the words might mean and building dictionaries, it's, I think this is part of my emphasis of intellectual humility that I keep coming back to on here, right? The reason, like when, when scholars are building these, these tools for us to use, there's a lot of uncertainty about what a certain word means because we don't live in ancient Greece. We also don't live in ancient Israel, right? And so what we do is we look at all of the times this word occurs in the ancient literature that we have. We sum it up and try to put it in a dictionary entry. Then what happens years later is another scholar will come and read that dictionary entry and say, I think that's bullcrap. And so then they'll critique that dictionary entry and refute it. And if they do a good enough job and scholars start to kind of agree with the critiques that they brought to that previous entry, they'll modify that dictionary entry again. And so these aren't static terms that exist. So even if you're like words it, in our English language don't have static meaning. Yep. If you're reading it in the ancient Greek, you can still debate about what any one word means. Now, whether or not you can do that reasonably about the word chi, chi is the, basically the word and in, yeah. in ancient Greek. I mean, if you debate about what it means, it's used so many times in so many different ways. Like it's, it's a very fluid meaning word, right? Or versus something like Christos, which is Christ. Um, like these two things, they occupy very different spaces. And so th the debate about these words and what they mean is very different. And so anyway, all of that to say, even if you're reading it in the ancient Greek, it's very fluid, but you, sir, or your congregants that are, you're trying to talk to right now about just them, their Bible and the Holy Spirit and you, they're reading it as translated by the scholars that you say aren't worth reading. So ultimately, they're going through some gatekeepers already. Let's be intellectually honest about what's happening right now. And this was a, a soapbox of mine early on, and this will still be a soapbox of mine understanding why the translators made the translation they made and their agendas of the translation is crucially important to reading the Bible in English. It just is. And so you should always read multiple translations because that's another thing, right? In a dictionary entry, we can have tons of little comments about what this word might possibly mean. But when it comes to translating that word in that text, you're not going to sell your translation of the, the New Testament if you don't pick a word. If you keep footnoting every, every time, like dictionary entry length, like, oh, but it could mean this or could mean that, no one's going to want to read that unless they're a scholar who also has access to the dictionary. So this is not to scare anyone. This is not to ruin anyone's faith and tear it down. This is to be realistic about what's actually going on. Period. So yeah, 
you. So, so, so if we're going to reframe what this guy is saying, it's you, the Holy Spirit, your Bible, the committee who translated it, and his opinion. That's a lot of people involved. That's a lot of people involved. I had something snarky, but I forgot what it was. I mean, it's for the better. <laughs> Spirit-filled preachers comment on it, but not books made by man to comment on it and to guide you. You should have... Also, sorry. <sighs> books m made by man. So the Bible isn't a book made by human beings. What is it? Golden tablets that fell from heaven, didn't you know? Are we Mormon now? All right, Joseph Smith. I mean, the again, as we talked about last week, if I can destroy your view of the Bible with the Bible, that's it's kind of a problem. And if I can take how you view inspiration in the scriptures and make a very pointed joke about someone you would say doesn't interpret scripture right, Mormons. We also have another problem. Mm -hmm. Muslims, for that matter, too. Mm -hmm. Muhammad and the angel. Anyway, lying spirits. There's, there's, mm -hmm. there is so many. Uh, there's so many parallels between the revelations of Joseph Smith and uh, Muhammad. It's just staggering. But anyway, maybe a different conversation. Maybe not. Have a private Bible time where it's just you and the Lord and no one else. I believe the widespread popularity of this belief logically forces a great deal of churches to promote intellectual illiteracy as a mark of spiritual maturity. This occurs by reason of the following syllogism. Premise 1. It is spiritually mature to prioritize superior sources for Bible interpretation over inferior sources for Bible interpretation. Premise 2. The Holy Spirit is a superior source for Bible interpretation and intellectual publications are inferior sources for Bible interpretation. Necessarily, therefore, three, it is more spiritually mature to prioritize the Holy Spirit for Bible interpretation than intellectual publications. In other Comment? No. Okay. I... Again, books made by man. That's... In this whole logical sequence... That's what I hear. Mm -hmm. This is why you have to have the debate about inspiration and why you have to at least think honestly about what you think of the biblical inspiration, because that's going to affect, as I said again and again last week, how you view the Bible and why it was written. If God is secretly whispering in all the ears of all the authors exactly what he wants, then I guess it does logically follow they can secretly whisper in your ear what exactly he means. Yep. But again, this foregoes how we think of communication in every other realm of life, by the way. And if God is actually, you know, interested in interacting with humans, which I believe he is because he does it from page two of the Bible. This is why we talk about divine accommodation. Yep. In other words, people who believe the Holy Spirit is a superior source for Bible interpretation are logically forced to view the prioritization of intellectual publications as immoral, as an act of spiritual immaturity. If you want to see a perfect example of this in the wild, we can look to a recent YouTube debate between Mike Jones of Inspiring Philosophy 
and a user by the name of G-Man. The topic of this debate was whether or not the long lifespans in Genesis are literal or symbolic. Immediately into his opening statement, Mike goes full nerd mode. He summarizes a recent doctoral dissertation on the topic, then starts machine gun firing off scads of scholarly arguments and comparative cultural analysis as he unpacks his case. It is clear that Mike prioritizes academic literature for understanding the meaning of the Bible. G-Man, on the other hand, doesn't believe academic literature is a priority for understanding the Bible. For him, the Holy Spirit takes eclipsing priority. G-Man produces no bibliography. He references no studies. Instead, he mainly just loudly read Sunday school-level Bible verses at us over and over like we're a bunch of children. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Study to show that I self-approve unto God. It says that we're supposed to study to show our self-approval. What may not need? Study to show our self-approval unto God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. And the word of God is useful for correction. Okay, if the Bible is useful for correction and reproof, the Bible is useful for, for correction. Our Bibles tell us that our Bibles are useful for correction. A word may not, need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what it says. And you should hear what it's profitable for. Is it profitable for doctrine, for correction, and instruction in righteousness? I don't see anywhere in this. Also, what is, sorry, but just in terms of this debate, and I know debates have tangents, but what is that? have to do with lifespans in Genesis? I don't know. Where it says that, you know, that the word of God is good for scholars and good, no. Most significantly throughout this debate, he doesn't just disagree with Mike. Rather, he continually morally condemns him for his reliance on libraries and scholars as a spiritually immature deference to the word of man. Not, not scholars. You and your scholars and the Bible. Show me in the Bible. Open up your Bible right now. Well, I'm sorry. Open up your Bible right now and show me how you came to, and I, and I don't want to hear nothing else about another scholar. Can I read a passage in scripture? We ought to obey God rather than man. Is God before scholars? No one studies the scripture by reading the Bible and then immediately going to scholars. They search the scriptures. They didn't quote scholars. I got a scripture I want to read to you, inspiring philosophy about the days that we're living in. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Despite literally thumping the Bible. Literally thumping the Bible right there. Sorry, I just had to. Uh, again. And this doesn't say that G-Man doesn't like love Jesus. Yeah, I'm I sure mean, he his does. hat tells him that us that exact thing, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm sure he does. But I just want you guys to listen to how he's talking about the Bible versus things that are written that talk about the Bible. By man, not by God. By man, not by God. The scriptures. The scriptures. Okay, so what does this tell me that you think about how the Bible came to be and how it was written and what it's for? Also, time out real, real, real quick on that. Um, this is kind of a tangent that I think we went on in a previous episode pretty early on, but I think it's relevant here too. Um, when, <clears throat> when you hear from the Holy Spirit, to go talk to someone else about something. Is that your words or is that God's words? Right? Because what if they heard from the Holy Spirit and they wrote that down? Does that now make it 
your words or, or God's words? And like, I fully believe that I have heard things that have been inspired by God. I wouldn't consider those things scripture, right? There are things that I've read in, say, C.S. Lewis, that I think were inspired by God. I don't think they're scripture necessarily, but I mean, again, there's the whole debate about what is, what isn't, and, and things like that. And so there's also a demarcation here that he's not even, this, this G-man guy isn't even aware that's happening, right? There's scripture, and then there's what God has said, and those are actually two different things. That's why, I, what do you mean by God's words? What do you mean? This is where I'm Bartian. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. 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 So I don't and, know. I just had to, to make that point even more to bring it back to inspiration, right? Let's talk about the conductor and his piece of music. It's a little different, but it still applies. I firmly believe this because we talk about, again, we talk about musical inspiration in very spiritual ways, artistic inspiration, in very spiritual ways. Even secularists, hard-blown secularists talk about inspiration and music and production of artistic expression in very spiritual ways. What is the muse, if not like possession, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. in the in the analogy of the conductor the the mormon conductor at that that i drew from last week and before okay so you're working on this piece of music you're working on this piece of music you can't figure it out can't figure it out can't figure it out four five six seven months go by and then he finally gets it and in 15 minutes he's done was he only inspired for 15 minutes or that he finally figured out after seven months of thinking about it? Mm -hmm. Is it his music? Is it his music or is it the muse or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Is it God's words? Because again, so to bring it again, to use a more personal example and something that's not even, that is man's words. Mm -hmm. I read 12 Rules for Life um, two, two summers ago and I was reading chapter eight. Just tell the truth or at least don't lie. That chapter convinced me to break up with Max girlfriend because I realized I was lying. I felt God say to me, and this is no, no joke. Like I literally felt like the Holy Spirit was impressing upon me to use phrases we'd use in church or in Christian circles. The Holy Spirit was impressing upon me, which I think I like that phrase way more than God spoke to me, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Luke. Luke, 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 you've been lying to yourself about how you feel about this. You've been covering it up and covering it up because you're committed to being committed. And I love that you're committed, but maybe you're committed to something wrong. And maybe you're committed to something you've lied to yourself about. Maybe. 
but again, there's just certain ways that Peterson described deception and lying and lying to yourself and lying to yourself, not with words or phrases that you say, but with actions that you take to cover up things you don't want to look at. Yeah. And without those explanations, those phrases, those words to inspire me in some weird sense, I don't know if I would have understood it. And maybe I needed that time in that relationship to get it. You know, who knows? Maybe I needed my seven minutes, seven months to get my 15 minutes. Okay, so is so if the Holy Spirit uses, and we see this all the time, my friend Peter, my Jewish friend Peter, what did he say was the book that made him ask the question that finally got him saved at some point later? The Last Temptation of Christ. It's obviously not telling. Yeah. That's not scripture. Those are man's words. Those are a lot of man's words. And so is Peterson. Are they inspired? Holy Spirit seems to use them. Yeah, they're definitely being used. So, again, word of God, word of man. What do you mean? What do you mean? What again? This is where I'm barking. What constitutes the words of God? What do you mean? Because you're going to say stuff like God spoke to me about things way outside of the Bible. Yeah. I'm sure if you pressed him, G Man would have stories like that. Yeah. Or something to use the phrase from the guy before some pastor said, because mm-hmm. I've had that moment or worship song or whatever it may be. Yeah. Same. What do you mean? I'm pooning him. I actually don't think G man is being irrational in this debate at all. Recall again our syllogism, and you can appreciate that he was being extremely rational within his core two presuppositions. He had to morally scold Mike's prioritization of academic literature because he sees this as promoting spiritually immature hermeneutics. G-Man's attitude is probably the default of most American evangelical churches. And I'm going to tell you something else that bothered me. I, I, I don't know. I was just thinking. I was like, do you listen to the Holy Spirit? Somebody say, does he listen to the Holy Spirit? You guys heard how he responded. Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Then we only have one teacher, and then it's the Holy Spirit. We can see a final example in yet another debate between Kent Hovind and Mike on Genesis. Throughout this debate, it was extremely obvious, again, that these two are from two totally different hermeneutical universes. Kent Hovind has dedicated most of his life ostensibly to defending and teaching Genesis. In my childhood, he was virtually the leader of the Young Earth creation movement in America. Despite all this, throughout the debate, Hoven continually voiced his ignorance of all the Genesis scholars and publications that Mike referenced. I refer to people like Michael Heiser, uh, J. Richard Middleton, um, Joshua John Van Ease, a guy I've just been reading recently, love his work, um, Robert E. Holmes, I'm referring to the experts here. I don't want to be drawn back by Ken because I want to stay with the actual people who know the text, who know the Hebrew, who know what they're talking about. That's what <laughs> led me away from Kent. I even email John Walton when I'm able to because I want to know more about this. Let me answer it also if I could, please. 
Uh, he uses a lot of big names of supposed experts today. I've never heard of any of them. They may be expert in Hebrew. At one point in the Q&A, Hoven was asked a question about Klaus Vestermann, who wrote the most influential commentary on Genesis in the 20th century. Hoven stated point blank that he'd never heard of the guy. I don't know who Westerman is or what, uh, what he's talking about there. What we also learn that Hoven thinks that the Trinity is its enemy heresy of modalism, but I digress. I am a father and a son and a brother all at the same time, but I'm only one person. That's modalism now. Are you a modalist? I don't, under- I don't think you understand the Trinity. You're describing it in modalist or partialistic ways, which is heresy. I don't know what you mean by this modalism and partialism. Again, Hoven believes the Holy Spirit is his Bible commentary, and that God has so ordained it that simply reading his King James is all that he needs. He doesn't bother to read textual scholars, and he apparently never even picked up an intro to theology book in his decades as a Christian leader, because research libraries are utterly superfluous to his interpretive methodology. In this video, I want to explain to you why the Holy Spirit isn't your Bible commentary. I'll try to be quick here, that way we can keep moving, but... The problem, I mean, he just really tore apart all of Kent Hovind's like whole foundation, right? He he cited doctrine of the Trinity in a, a heretical way. Now, I'm fine if you want to believe that heretical belief. I, I'll actually permit that, right? If you want to have a good argument for it. So go read the church fathers. And the, the 200 years they spent arguing about this and find out what they had to say, right? Because that should be your starting point. And I'm sorry, man, but you haven't, clearly. No, if you don't even know what modalism is. If, if you don't know what modalism is, which I learned in my basic intro to theology. No, I learned in undergrad in my New Testament class taught at a community college what modalism was. Explain real quick for those who don't know what modalism is. Basically, that instead of having three persons in the Trinity, you have one person operating in three ways, in three modes. He talks about this guy, uses the example of he's a father, a husband, and a son all at once. Yeah. Well, he's the same person operating in three different ways. The other analogy that's actually I like more is like uh, water. Right. Yeah. So water can manifest itself, to use a better word, in three different states Mm -hmm. vapor, ice, and liquid. Yeah. But it's all H2O, baby. Yeah. Like it, there's no, the point, the reason modalism is heresy is because there aren't separate persons. Exactly. And this goes back to, I'm thinking of phrases from Pete N's introduction to, the Bible is divine and human. Jesus is divine and human. Mm-hmm. He is not sometimes one and only partially the other, or yeah. sometimes one and not the other, which is, again, if you want to go to other heresies about the Trinity, the Arian heresy. Yep. There was a time when the son was not. That's yep. what Arian said. Yep. That's why there was the first council, by the way, the Nicene yep. council at least, which was yeah. not about the Bible. Nope. No matter what Dan Brown wants to say, it's not yeah. about the canon. Yeah. It's about the, it's about the role of the trinity role of the trinity and the holy spirit specifically and then you get the nicene creed which again has nothing to do with canon yeah so those that want to argue about sorry it's another tangent but those that want to argue about oh the canon wasn't established until four nope that the nicaea nope constantine never 
That was not on if debate. You, if you come at me with that argument ever, you've immediately lost all your credibility because you understand nothing about church history at all. At all. Um, at least not enough to understand that fundamentally the canon was culturally established long before. Now, granted, there might have been some leeway depending on what community you're talking about, right? No leeway now, by the way. There's still so... leeway now. And I, I would be all for reading apocryphal books. Yes. Okay. But to try and say that, oh, it was the secret council of people backdoor trying to manipulate things. No, you, no. And to, so to go back to your water analogy of modalism real quick, and then we can keep moving. I just wanted to really bring that up because um, anyway, so I'll, I'll use a different analogy. Dude. Staggering. Yeah. I'll use a different analogy, then make one more observation about Kent and we can keep moving. Um, the, the correct way, the correct analogy is not water for the Trinity. And it's not, I'm a father and a son and a, a husband or a brother or what, you know, whatever. Right. Um, it's um, light or knowledge. Both of these analogies work. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus in his work um, on God and Christ, which I have over there, and I wrote a paper on his Trinitarian theology, he uses the idea of light. Um, I think Augustine uses knowledge in some of his sermons, and I'll talk about both. Light or the sun, right? You have the Father that's the, the sun in the sky, not the sun as the divine sun, um, who's emanating rays and and light. And I think he differentiates the two, rays and light, because they had a different concept of how light functioned back then. That's, that's kind of complicated, but essentially they place. saw the ray I'm and the, exactly, but they saw the ray and light as two different things. They saw the ray as the thing carrying the light. And then the light as something that was almost an effect of the ray. Right. And so the, the sun emanates the ray, like the father emanates the sun and then the sun or the ray. And the fact that we have sun and then divine sun is making this language really confusing, but the, the, the light, um, the ray coming from the sun that represents the father is the divine sun that is imparting the Holy Spirit. Or you can use knowledge, right? So the father speaks a divine word that is the sun. And then that divine word can take root in us. And ha we have the knowledge of the word, like, you're, like if you take knowledge and you write it down, it doesn't leave, it doesn't stop being divine because it went from the father to the page, right? Or from, it doesn't stop being knowledge because it went from the scholar to the page. And it also doesn't stop being knowledge or stop being on the page because it goes from the page into your mind either. It's all three of those things simultaneously and yet distinct at the same time, right? Because it doesn't stop existing here. It doesn't stop existing there. And it doesn't stop existing in the mind of the person who reads it. It's three distinct things simultaneously, but the same thing at the same time. So that's Trinitarian theology in five minutes or whatever. What was your comment about Ken? Mm. Yes. He also, he talks about, you know, oh, they may be experts in Hebrew. Sir, are you, are you just not? made me laugh so hard. Are you not? Like, are, so you've been, pre you've made your, based your whole career off of reading this text in translation. It, yeah, exactly. Back to your point previously. That you don't know what it means? 
in the original language. Now, I don't know whether or not he knows Hebrew or not, right? But for him to say, oh, well, they may be experts in Hebrew. Bro, if they're experts in Hebrew, that means they know the text better than you do. I'm sorry to say. I'm really, well, I'm really not sorry. This to is say. like saying, I'm like, a, to use a maybe a little bit more of a pointed example. That's like saying I'm a scholar of uh, Dostoevsky but I don't read Russian. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Oh, so you're going to dedicate year decades of your life to studying a Russian author and never learn how to read him in his mother tongue. Really? That's sad. It really is. This is why I am hell bent on taking languages. I don't even know perfect, but mm. yeah. Cause again, back to, back to my example, we'll use an, another common language, German, right? I miss things when I watch dark because I can't read or can't understand German. I can read yeah. the subtitles in English, which are a translation of what is being said by the characters. I'd love to sit with someone who is German and then be like, Oh my gosh, that translation was horrible. And you can figure out why, mm-hmm. because there's context and, alliteration just like things you learn when you read hebrew poetry specifically and there's wordplay that you just don't catch because it doesn't it literally doesn't translate yeah and why this belief is as unbiblical as it is highly destructive Historically, the most critical text on the debate about the holy spirit's role in interpretation has been 1 Corinthians 2:14 here paul says to the church The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to know them, because they are spiritually appraised. If you're like me, you grew up hearing this passage invoked to mean that a person can't even intellectually comprehend the meaning of a Bible passage without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is necessary to supply this comprehension. This may surprise most people, but the majority of conservative seminary textbook authors reject this interpretation, and for excellent reasons. Rob Stein is Senior Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has a PhD in New Testament from Princeton. First, he points out that there are several Greek words that Paul could have used in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says the natural man doesn't accept the things of God. Paul doesn't use the common Greek term lambano, which broadly and generically means to take. Instead, he uses the verb dechomai, which is more nuanced. In its 56 occurrences in the New Testament, dechomai always specifically refers to the acceptance of a requested offering. In other words, the natural man doesn't just fail to receive the things of the Spirit of God because he can't intellectually comprehend the message. Rather, the connotation of the Greek term is that he intellectually does receive the message, but he then chooses to reject its request. Second, as Stein additionally points out, the verb translated foolishness in this verse is also used again by Paul in the very next chapter, and in the one preceding. Does this Greek term refer to something being incomprehensible in that context? In 1 Corinthians 3.19 we read, quote, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Obviously, God intellectually comprehends the presumed wisdom of the world. But the reason that God rejects it as foolishness here, the Greek term moria, is that he doesn't accept it as true. His rejection of it is actually predicated on the fact that he comprehends it. 
For these reasons, as Larkin's study acknowledges, 1 Corinthians 2.14 assumes non-believers are indeed capable of mentally comprehending the Bible, and that it is actually this very capacity that causes them to dislike what it says, and to consciously reject its message. The late Roy Zuck, Senior Professor Emeritus of Bible Exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. Also, on that note, If we feel like so many people are rejecting the message of God, maybe that has to do with our explanation of it yeah. more than their foolishness. <clears throat> and before you play it, I want to make another observation. Were, were you done? I didn't yeah. need to interrupt you. Okay. Is the second time that he's referenced a relatively conservative or very conservative theological institution, right? Dallas Theological Seminary and is giving a perspective that you will not find predominant in churches, conservative or liberal churches, actually, certain liberal churches, on the way the Bible functions and the Holy Spirit helps interpret the Bible. And this is kind of going again to to the point I made earlier and the point that I will come back to at the end, that there's a, there's a massive disconnect between the seminary student and the way we're trained and the way the Bible is engaged in the church. Massive disconnect. And what I want to do with my career is help bridge that gap. Because I think the way that most churches engage the Bible is intellectually dishonest, and somewhat deceptive. And we're not taught that in seminary. And I don't know if this is the old guard of pastors that are still in that vein that were taught that, or I don't know if the pastors are not doing what they were taught. I I don't know what exactly the, the disconnect is there, but I am becoming more and more surprised that What you and I do every day when we sit down and study for school, when we read and we write, is not what actually happens in biblical interpretation from the pulpit. It's mind-boggling. Anyway. Also comes to this conclusion in his paper, The Role of the Holy Spirit in Hermeneutics. Quote, the verse does not mean that an unsaved person who is devoid of the Holy Spirit cannot understand mentally what the Bible is saying. Instead, it means that he does not welcome its message of redemption into his own heart. Besides being demanded by the Greek terminology, this interpretation of 1 Corinthians 2.14 is common sense. If the Holy Spirit is necessary to understand the Bible, then it would be impossible for religious Jews or atheists and agnostics to participate in serious Bible exposition or writing accurate technical commentaries yet we often find them producing some of the sharpest work in the field. Bart Ehrman, for example, the famous non-believing New Testament scholar, teaches university classes on the meaning of Jesus' parables. He does this for a living, and I listen to his lectures and derive great benefit from them because I recognize his intellectual understanding of them as clearly superior to mine. Similarly, I found that the Jewish scholar Robert Alter has produced what is probably the best translation of the book of Genesis in the English language. 
and many of the best journal articles on the Hebrew scriptures are written by Jewish Israelis since they speak Hebrew as their first language. Brent Osborne was professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. If you do graduate work at any evangelical seminary, at some point you'll probably have to read his massive classic work, The Hermeneutical Spiral. Again, recognizing all these points, he likewise belabors, quote, The Bible does not state that an unbeliever cannot intellectually interpret it quite accurately. So, Paul is claiming that the Holy Spirit's usual role resides in the subjective embracing and application of Scripture into a person's life. None of the grammatical, historical, cultural, nuts-and-bolts interpretation of its meaning. Surely Paul believes God could show you verses meaning supernaturally, just like he could supernaturally help you pass a school exam you haven't studied for. But that would literally be a miraculous exception, and you shouldn't count on it as if doing so makes you spiritual. It only makes you lazy. Now, all you conservatives and all you conservative Christians who love Jordan Peterson, is he not doing, let's say, important biblical interpretation? Mm -hmm. Now, you might disagree with certain aspects of his interpretation. I would. Same. But oh, he's he pulls so much wisdom. He's saving the culture. Oh, right. But I thought all you needed was your Bible and the Holy Spirit. When, if pressed, you might say he doesn't have it. So what does that mean? Yeah. And also, and also, maybe we should do this one day just for fun. Just read the comments on his biblical lectures. It's fascinating. I have a friend who he got baptized a few months ago. He said to me recently, we were um, hanging out, um, just talking Bible. One of the, he loves asking good questions about, of, of me because I'm in seminary and he's just a curious person. We're having a really good conversation about the Bible. Um, and as I do, I say things that, make people uncomfortable about the Bible. I mean, this whole conversation is probably making some people uncomfortable right now. Um, but he said that Jordan Peterson was one of the things that influenced him to return or just like start thinking about Christianity as like a serious option again. And I find that to be incredible, especially because like you said, if pressed, I think few Christians would say he is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, right? So I find that to be fundamentally interesting and counterintuitive to the way that most people conceive of um, the way this works. I mean, it's almost as though our actions and our um, beliefs don't line up. And here's the, I think, the sadder part of all this. I think a lot of the reason that these things, and this is the reason, one of, one of maybe three big reasons that I do this, I think part of the reason 
that this goes untaught or unsaid in church is most pastors maybe and maybe they themselves they think this of themselves too possibly they can't do it or their congregation isn't up for it what do you mean I mean, we're in this because we love it mm-hmm. and it's apparent. We also have sacrificed a whole lot to do this. Yeah. Not just this podcast, but to get educated, to we're both taking large financial risks at some level. Yeah. Right. I could be making six figures right now with my undergraduate degree. And yet I'm making basically my scholarship while my wife works to help me through school. Yeah. She's taking a risk too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not just your risk. Yeah. It's hers as well. And praise God for her. Amen. Um, my, but my point is we have sacrificed a whole, I move cities for this. Yeah. I'm about to live at housing that my school provides because I make that little money that that had to kind of be an option for me, mm-hmm. even with money that I get because I have the GI bill from my dad, which is no secret to anyone that knows me. So I don't feel bad sharing it. So at some level, I am very blessed. And this is why I say our, our situations are different, yeah. but I get, you have a scholarship and I don't, but I also get paid a monthly stipend from the VA to go to school. So that helps cover some of that. Yeah. Point is we've both made tremendous sacrifices to dedicate our time and energy to studying this. And I think that most pastors, let me, let me give it the most good faith. I can. I think, I think a lot of people in church leadership are simply blind or unaware of the ability of some of the people in their congregation. And some of them aren't like my, sorry, this is turning into a way longer explanation than I thought, but I think this is important. I think there are a lot of pastors that understand there's some people that really care about this. And there's some people in their congregation that don't. So you got to kind of hit the middle. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's wrong to assume that none of them want the deeper things, right? Yeah. That's what, what I mean. Now. Yeah. That's what I mean. So I think that be- this is never this kind of thing. Like just sit in your Bible with your, in your room with your Bible and just read it. Scripture, observation, application, and prayer, because who wants to go by a new Testament, uh, you know, commentary. Well, mom asked for one for Christmas. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, yeah. um, dude, you have the internet, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is why I do what I do. Cause I'm like, well, okay. But it ain't that hard anymore. Mm-mm. You know, and it depends on, obviously you got to be discerning about who exactly you listen to. Right. 
But man, that, and even for us, man, there's some days where I only get to do 30 minutes of work because I'm at work, you know, all day. That'll be tomorrow. I might get an hour of work in if I'm lucky. But hey, that 20 minutes you drive to work, instead of listening to the radio or the news show, you could listen to someone talk about, you could listen to Mike Winger's series through the gospel of Mark. You could, if you really wanted to. Yeah, It's that easy. It might take you there and back from work to finish the episode or two days of that granted to finish the episode. What about while you're doing the dishes? What about while you're working out? What about that 20 minutes between when you put the kids to bed and when you go to bed? Again, I just, I think that this is not talked about or, or said explicitly because a lot of pastors, whether they think their congregation is up to the task or not, doesn't think that they'll, honestly, maybe doesn't even really think they'll make the time for it. You know, a lot of people are busy. They got, but like I just said, what do you do with that 15 minutes that you're driving to work? What do you do with that uh, 15 minutes of your 30 minute lunch break when you're done eating and you're just sitting there scrolling Instagram or TikTok? Really? What are, could you, you could. Okay. So yeah. go ahead. So on that two things, um, that's exactly what I do when one preparing for what we do here, right? You send me a video or I send you a video. We have established what we're going to talk about. I listen to it while I'm at the gym on my way to and from school while I'm fixing my lunch before school. Um, you know, whatever. I also listen to a whole host of other things in those time slots when I'm not listening to what we're going to be covering when I'm not thinking about that. And so I promise that if you really get creative, you can find the time to, to expose yourself to some stuff. And ironically, if you're listening to my voice now, you probably have found that time to, to some degree. Right. Um, but if you're a pastor who's found the time to listen to my voice, Encourage other people in your congregation to do the same thing, because I fully believe that it's the job of pastors not to create congregants that are dependent on them for their spiritual reality. I think creating disciples is creating spiritually independent people. And I was about to say, well, the pastor could say. Oh no, but I'm worried about when they Google that thing or ask that question on YouTube, who they're going to find. Yeah. Why? Because it's not you? One, because it can potentially be a threat to their authority in their life. So True. it can, it and can it could actually be, be heretical. It yeah, could and it actually could be, be bad. But, but go ahead. Okay. I was going to say if one, you don't trust them to be able to sort through that then that's not good. And two, if you don't trust yourself to be able to help them through navigating that, and if they don't trust you to help them navigate that, then I think there's a whole other host of problems going on. So ultimately, I never think non-exposure to an idea is the proper answer because I think I could destroy some, if I tried, I could probably destroy someone's faith in five minutes. If I present certain facts, but if I present my broad perspective on something, 
I think it's actually enriching and uplifting and brings us closer to God. So that would be my point number one. And um, shoot, you said something. My, my point was going to be, if your directive to them is something like the SOAP method, and you say, just let God speak to you, let the Holy Spirit, you know, invite, I've heard this all the time, before you open your Bible, and this isn't bad practice, by the way, but before you open your Bible in the morning, sit there and pray and ask God to reveal what he wants to, to you. Yeah, I do that okay. frequently. Why can't you have them pray the same prayer when they enter that question into Google? Yeah. The same spirit that you're trusting, that you are telling them to trust when they open the Bible, can't you, you should have the same mentality when you tell them, if you're curious about this, go look stuff up about it. Yeah. Are you not going to trust the same spirit? Really? Yeah. Okay. So there's other spirits out there to something we're going to read in a minute. On yeah. this, and I was actually going to suggest we do that now. Sure, we can, yeah. Um, so I think my first reference was going to be First uh, Kings 22, 1 through 28. Um, and I think we've talked about this on the, the podcast before. Um, passage but i think it really fits gonna, well daniel i'm gonna make i've decided and you can reject this live on air if you want to what's the second passage john four uh first john four one through ah, six first john yeah reject what on air uh i want to make a video about uh why <laughs> why uh christianity isn't a monotheism that'd be fun yeah i'm down okay <laughs> i mean that was one of our first conversations that we had on air mm -hmm. actually so i don't think it's any it's secret. a nice uh it's a it's nice uh, spicy title yeah but uh it's also i think it would also honestly work as a great intro video to something like unseen realm or heiser at large so that's true that's true anyway oh, yes. um on that note so Holy Spirit as the key method of interpretation, right? That's the generalized, more conservative perspective. Um, and it's the superior method of interpretation and all mm -hmm. inferior methods should be rejected. And so Bible commentaries are um, inferior and therefore they should be rejected. That's what Ben S is saying is the general idea. Um, but how do we know what is and isn't the Holy Spirit, right? We've talked for a whole episode and then some comments afterwards about the idea of there being other spirits, right? Um, the term egregore came up. And um, I think we can see the way that this works in the Bible itself in some pretty interesting ways. So I don't know if you have it ready. Yeah. Was um, it first Kings 22? One through 28. You know, uh, we don't have to read that whole section. Let me see where it stops. You have a uh, site. Okay, uh, 19 is where the, okay, cool. So can you give some context yeah, for the passage? The... And then yeah. I'm going to read um, 18 through the end. Yeah, that sounds good. 
Um, so the context for the passage would be um, King Ahab is about to go to war and he has his council of prophets because kings had prophets on their payroll back mm-hmm. in those days. Groups of prophets, um, by the way. Gr- groups of prophets um, that would prophesy for them. And his entire council of prophets prophesies that he will go out and win and be victorious and it'll be fantastic. And he's like, hmm, I'm a little skeptical because you guys always prophesy that good things are going to happen to me. Let me go ask the one prophet who's prophesied things against me that are bad. And so he goes to a man named Micaiah ben Imla, um, Micaiah son of Imla, and who's the one prophet who prophesies something bad. And Micaiah says something like, and I don't know exactly where you're going to start, but Micaiah says something like, oh, you're going to do just fine. It'll be okay. And Ahab's like, really, bro? Are you sure? And Micaiah's like, okay, you caught me. I'm lying. I was taken up into the council of heaven and I saw this debate happen between God and, um, and his divine council. All right. I'll start so in verse 16 because okay. we're right at that portion in the story. But the king said to him, he's having the conversation with Micaiah now, but the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. (laughs) Oh, man. What a phrase. And Yahweh said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you? that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at remote Gilead? Oh, what a God we serve really interesting considering the passages we read last week about in, enticement and who exactly is doing the enticing. But. And one said one thing and one said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And the spirit said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall, su- you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Who, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and follow Moth Gilead? I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you will entice him. You shall succeed. Go out and do so. All right. Second passage, 1 John 4. So time out real quick. Go ahead. Just just to pose the question before we get to here, because I think this is a similar passage, but talking about a different thing. And it's almost exactly an answer to the passage we just read. So there was a lying spirit among the mouth of a ton of prophets. Prophets of a false false God. Yeah. Not Yahweh. Yeah. That's true too, right? But th- there was a lying spirit 
that was out there in the mouths of people, swaying them that there was a truth that was not the truth. Do you trust yourself enough to be able to turn to determine what is and isn't the lying spirit and the Holy Spirit? Do, should you not have a check on yourself, a reference point to look back to in helping you determine what is and isn't a lying spirit? John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you. This is a phrase that gets said all the time, but what, is, what do we mean? Again, what do you mean when you say this? Well, John apparently means he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world, meaning you can discern. They're from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever God, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay, if he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world, this is just a question that I think would naturally arise for somebody. Why can't he just tell me? But again, I think you're just circling the same question. Okay, but there's still other spirits out there, so we have to test them. We'll test them how? By what gospel they preach is basically John's answer. Yeah. So how much more do you have to say on this? That's, I, I that's wanna, the end of that. I want to pivot to Augustine real quick, if that's okay. okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read from the prologue of um, his book, De Doctrina Christiana, which is, um, stands for On Christian Doctrine or On Christian Teaching. Um, I'm going to read several excerpts from the prologue, then I'm going to jump to pretty late in chapter one and read some things there. Um, and I'll kind of break as we go. So in the beginning of his prologue, he talks about how he's going to start teaching about what good Christian teaching is. And he's um, acknowledging that people might be critical of his, um, of the fact that he's teaching how to preach and how to interpret the Bible. And so he recognizes three people that might in some way, shape or form reject his whole teaching here. He says, some people will reject this because they fail to comprehend. Others will reject it because they don't see anything valuable in it. And so they don't see how anything, anyone else will get something valuable from it. And then words he talks about words of men. Yeah, exactly. And then he talks about um, a third category, which is, I think, very interesting that he was dealing with this in the year 300 or in, in the 
um, like that whole hundred year span. And we're still dealing with it now. The third category of critics comprise those who either actually interpret scripture well or seem to in their own estimation. These observe or think they observe that they have gained the ability to explain the sacred writings, although they have studied none of their regulations or none of the principles that we should go about using to regulate ourselves. This is me here, not Augustine. The regulations are the principles that we should use to regulate ourselves in the process of interpreting scripture. They don't observe these. Can you read that quote again? Yeah. These observe or think they observe that they have the, gained the ability to explain sacred scriptures, although they have, not, they have studied none of the regulations of the sort that I have now determined to recommend. Accordingly, they will protest that those principles are essential to no one, but that whatever is convincingly revealed through the obscurities of those writings could be achieved more effectively by divine assistance alone. It's the same thing. Read it, just, read it again. Read it again, because when, <laughs> when did he write it? Again, this is like Lewis, 80 years ago. How many years ago is this? This is like 1,700 years ago. Something like that. Okay, give or keep, take. keep in mind what the past, I don't even know his name. Thank God. The pastor at the beginning in the clip said, and then yep. what the Ken, the Genesis guy said. Yeah. Read, read it again. These observe or think they observe that they have gained the ability to explain sacred writings, although they have studied none of the regulations of the sort that I have now determined to recommend. So end quote there for a second. They think they are observing how to interpret scripture, though they haven't studied ways of interpretation. They haven't learned how to read it properly. Begin quote again. Accordingly, they will protest that those principles are essential to no one, but that whatever is convincingly revealed about the obscurities of those writings, so end quote for a second, whatever is weird and mysterious about scripture, right? Whatever's been revealed about that, start quote, could be achieved more effectively by divine assistance alone. Back to the syllogism. The Holy Spirit is the superior method of interpretation. The words of man or the, what was his phrase? The borders is the wrong word what what is the phrase he uses um parameters something like that yeah he's got one principle and then a second principle and then the conclusion is drawn from those two principles now i lost my train of thought I totally lost it. It's off. Okay. I, I can keep going if you want. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to summarize another section real quick, and then I will read, um, read an, another section. Oh, um, so, okay, go. So Holy Spirit is, is superior mm -hmm. to interpreting the sacred texts and the mysterious revelations, which is better than 
parameters yeah. or methods of interpretation that you could learn. Anybody, this is part of, I think, why it gets tricky. Anybody can learn. Yeah. Therefore, the more spiritual, more spiritual. Mm -hmm. Again, I hate some of the words we use, but you know what I mean when I say that because it's mm -hmm. such common parlance. It's ridiculous. Whatever's more spiritual is to be the one that is used because it's greater because it wasn't, again, this is why the conservatives have a big problem with the Bible being human. Yeah. And this is why I will continually, eternally push and maybe harder than I should the humanness of the Bible. Because this is what I don't want you to fall prey to. Oh, it's so spiritual. It's so, it's just God's perfect words given to us. And I just, I have to have the Holy Spirit speak to me every time I read it. Otherwise, I'm weary of my interpretation or the pastor's interpretation or whatever. Yeah. No, it, because of the way that God wants to communicate and he wants to communicate well, because of divine accommodation, there are ways in which the writers are going to do things that you can understand. And I believe in you. You can do this. So just, and I'll say this phrase that you told me to save. So just like you're taught to literally look at and interpret meaning in The Great Gatsby, or just like that video you'll see on YouTube if you're a Marvel fan, right? The 10 things you, I could do it right now. Mr. Sunday, Sunday movies, the 10 things you missed in uh, Moon Knight, episode three. Yeah. Keep all that and then just bring it over here. Yeah. Because the same things apply. Yeah. So to, to keep going with Augustine, he goes on to say that, sure, miraculous interpretive um, interventions of God can happen. Um, and he talks about how there are several monks around his time that are said to have miraculously been able to me uh, memorize large chunks of scripture without before being able to read and all sorts of this. And he's like, that's great. But we should not count on that being the majority case because we, we have to learn languages children through a process. And we have to learn other languages as adults through a process. And likewise, we have to learn how to interpret the Bible usually as a process. Um, so he goes on to say that we should not be so arrogant as to think that Jesus himself will be the one to teach us. Right. Um, and, and it's actually really arrogant to, to believe that, to believe that we don't have to put some hard work into understanding the Bible. Um, and that's a rough paraphrase. I could read the, the four or five paragraphs, but again, go read the prologue of On Christian Doctrine by Augustine, and you'll see what I mean. Um, I'm going to read just the last little bit of, of this, because I think it's going to get basically directly to divine accommodation. Um, he says, all these things might well have been accomplished by an angel. All these like interpretive techniques, like if, if God was just going to speak to us, he could have just sent an angel. Um, or if he wanted Maroney. to just... Yeah. 
if, if he wanted to just spit out these words divinely, it could have just been an angel. But human nature would have been lowered in dignity if God had seen unwilling to transmit his word to men through human means. Divine accommodation 1,700 years ago. Say it again. Say it again. And I'm really curious in that first phrase. Human nature would have been lowered. Human nature would have been lowered in dignity if God had not seemed, uh, if God had seemed unwilling to transmit his word to men through human means. This makes me think of the many times that Jesus will confront. I think I mentioned this last week or the week before. Will confront the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And basically he'll say to them, don't you see it? Is it not clear to you? Mm -hmm. Do you not understand? Because, and I think I brought this, no, I brought this up in my old New Testament class, I think last night, because we were talking about, um, so just to give a kind of a basic example, Gospel of Luke. Luke 4 is on my mind because I wrote a paper, yes, finished a paper yesterday on Isaiah 61, and Jesus quotes that in Luke 4, at least, in the temple as the daily reading, and he quotes the first two verses, first verse, and then the first phrase of verse 2. There's debate about why he stops there, but we won't get into that. But he quotes the first verse, basically, of Isaiah 61, which is about the servant who is to bring about the new eschatological future to Israel. And he says he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and says, in this day it is fulfilled in your hearing, which is so interesting in and of itself. Why I make that point. So that was that is his proclamation of the beginning of his ministry, to do all these things that are said in Isaiah 61, verse 1. You can go read the passage if you'd like. Before this, in Luke's gospel, what happens? Jesus is born, least Egypt. I think it's in, is it in Matthew? That Matthew quotes, out of Egypt I've called my son, which actually has nothing to do, it's not a prophetic word in yeah. the context that it's given, by the way. Yeah. Speaking of Israel, which this is interesting if you think about Jesus as Israel, which I think is the whole point. Yeah. Right? Which, which is what I'm getting to. But even in Luke's gospel, Jesus is born. His ministry starts. Go back to our Trinitarian conversation. He is baptized, passes through the waters, comes up. The Father speaks. The Spirit descends like a dove, which is why we have all this Christian imagery of the dove. Corresponding to the Holy Spirit. It's very scriptural. Right. Yeah. The symbolism is all there. Yeah. Peugeot. All right. Thank you very much. Um, right. So the Trinity is all there, distinct, yet same. And then after Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, just like Moses passing through the Red Sea, where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness for 40 days. 
yeah. corresponding to, well, this is why we have Lent, by the way, mm-hmm. to reenact the story, um, to correspond to Israel's 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness. And he's tempted by the devil. And then he comes back and starts his ministry. All right, well, Jesus is literally acting out. And even Wright makes this comment in some of his essays in interpreting Jesus. Why does Jesus pick 12 disciples? 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, Jesus is acting out the story of Moses, who is the leader of Israel out of Exodus. Yeah. It's part of Luke's whole point in his gospel. Yeah. Why am I bringing all this up? I don't even remember. Uh, well, while you think about that, I've got something else from Augustine to. Uh, well, to sorry, con- what was it? This um, I just read something about divine accommodation, um, human, human human dignity. Yes, sorry. Um, so the scribes, the Pharisees, the 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 Sadducees. Not only is Jesus debating with them about what the scriptures mean, I think part of what he's doing is, look, don't you see? I'm acting it out. Yeah. I'm literally it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he's, but part of what my, my whole point in that tangent is, he's acting this out as the story in the gospel writers are obviously clear enough to pull this thing away from what he's doing. Yeah. They're beautifully laying out all these motifs of the Old Testament and the figures in the Old Testament that Jesus corresponded to, because as the writer of Hebrews say, greater, if, if Abraham is so great, how much greater is Jesus? Yeah. And even Aaron is high priest, line of Melchizedek, all of that. Yeah. But Jesus is assuming that they can pick it up. He's assuming that they have the cognitive ability and are learned enough and know enough that they should get it. Yeah. And they don't have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. They're not his followers. Yeah. But he's obviously, he just assumes, look, it's, I'm, I'm tr- look, dude, I was asleep in the boat and they woke me up and I calmed the storm. But I tell you, this generation will not get a sign other than the prophet Jonah, Jonah who is, and then now he prophesies death. Who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? Look, don't you? And he says it with the disciples all the time, too. Don't you Look, see? don't you see? Don't you get it? You want to have this whole debate about who do you say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses. Oh, well, let's go up to Mount Hermon. We'll do a bunch of different things there. It's, there's a lot of meaning in this, in this imagery. And why he does it, where he does it, by the way. We'll get to this in our gospel conversation. Yeah. Who appears with him on the mountain? Elijah and Moses. Some say. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses. And I think there's interesting reasons for why exactly. Mm -hmm. But part of Jesus' point is, no, 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 no. They're good. They're with me. I'm something different. But again, don't you, don't you see? Because you should. Yes, you might have, to reference a Rob Bell sermon we haven't listened to. 
you guys know. You've studied the scripture since you were little children. And true, you might not have been picked by the rabbis, but I picked you. Shouldn't you know? Oh, how long? Right? And even, even when they, the, my favorite Bible story, probably. My favorite story maybe in the Gospels. The road to Emmaus. He walks with the two disciples. And he's like, oh, Jesus is funny, man. Why, why are you so troubled? Why are you sad? Oh, are you the only one that doesn't know about what happened in Jerusalem? The great prophet, Jesus, he died. And apparently he hides himself because they don't know who he is, which is also hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't tell me Jesus ain't got a sense of humor, man, you ain't listening. And then what does he do? Oh, you, what does he say all the time to disciples? Oh, you have little faith. You don't see it, do you? And then what does it say? He explained to them how all the, throughout the law and the prophets, throughout the whole books, why what happened must have happened and how they all pointed to him. So apparently, and then what? It's, Sorry, but this I think that's so interesting that when they get to where they're going, Jesus A says, no, 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 I'm going to leave. And he just disappears. <laughs> yeah. Just gone. Poof. And then it's not till they do what that they remember. Not till they break the bread. And then they're like, oh, did, what it, didn't our hearts burn with passion when he was explaining to us all these things. Oh, so you can get it. And they were lucky because Jesus himself got to explain it to them. I would love to hear that conversation. Same. It would help a lot of my hermeneutics about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But apparently at some level, and for a lot of people, Jesus himself seems to think, you know what, man? If you're looking, it's pretty clear. And with how much the gospel writers use prophecies, especially things in Isaiah and Isaiah 53 in particular. Yeah. They knew what was going on. They oh, could yeah. see. So I'm done. That's good. That's good. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of things. Um, before I get back to on Christian doctrine, I'm going to read something from a sermon that he did on, um, on Psalm 140. Uh, and he has a weird way of interpreting the Psalms. And I'll, assuming we have time for to talk about that in a little bit, but um, he, he makes this statement here, charity, um, love, Right, it's translated charity here, but it's the same word that we can translate love. And there are reasons for that, those differences in translation. But he says, charity thus defined by the apostles comprised two commandments, the love of God and the love of neighbor. You see, uh, you need to look for nothing else in scripture and let no one lay upon you any other commandment. There is... Um, Wherever there is an obscure passage in scripture, charity is concealed in it. 
and wherever the sense is plain, charity is proclaimed. If it were nowhere plain to see, it would not be nourishing to you. And if it were nowhere concealed, it would not exercise you. So what Augustine is saying here, and what I think Jesus says in the Gospels, right? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What Augustine is doing is he's picking up on that. And what he's saying is the fundamental truth of scripture is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in the obscure passages, love is there somewhere. You might not understand exactly where, but it's there. Dig. The obscurity is there to kill your pride and to force you to learn it in a new way. And when the meaning of a passage is plain to you, it should be obvious that love is the point. That's what's going on. And so Augustine has, he has a weird way of interpreting scripture that can make some people uncomfortable in our modern context. And hopefully I'll have some time to talk about that now. If I don't, we'll definitely have to return to it. But he has this grounding principle that I think is also Jesus grounding principle. That love of God and love of neighbor is self are central. And everything else kind of hinges on those two things. So on that, um, you, you made a comment earlier that I wrote down when you were talking about your experience of God speaking to you through reading Peterson and your relational situation and deciding whether or not to um, stay in the relationship or, or leave. Um, you said you could be committing to something that was wrong, right? Um, so I'm going to read a, a passage here um, and then explain another thing that I think Augustine also says. So this will be in Entre Christian Teaching, but this is also somewhat in this sermon that I just read from too, from Augustine. Um, so he says, yet as I began to say, if he is deceived in an interpretation, so if the interpreter or the reader of scripture is deceived in the way they're interpreting scripture, by which whoever, um, if he is, in, okay, let me just start over, excuse me. Um, yet, as I began to say, if he is deceived in an interpretation by which, however, he builds up charity. So if, he's, if his interpretation isn't really the authentic truth, the objective thing, the, the, what the author intended, but he's building up love which is the end of the law. He is deceived in the same way as someone who leaves the road through an error, but makes his way through the field to the place that the road was also leading. Nevertheless, so he's making the same mistake as someone who's going on a journey, but ends at the right destination, but takes the long way around instead of going the most direct way. The destination was the same. Love God and love neighbor itself. That's good. You didn't get there quite like the author meant for you to, but you, you got the point, right? Good job. Nevertheless, he must be corrected and must be shown how it is more advantageous 
not to leave the road, lest by a habit of deviating, he may be drawn into a crossroad or even go the wrong way. Mm. So you might end up at the right place consistently by going about this the wrong way. Great, good job. But that doesn't mean we should build that habit up. We should learn principles. We should learn how to interpret correctly. That way we can use the road because it's a lot easier to use the road than it is to cut through the fields and the, the thickets and hop fences in order to get to love. There's a correct interpretation. You might not have it, but as long as you got love, you're good. But let's not try to make it a habit of going about this the wrong way. Let's use good principles of interpreting scripture. And so then, um, can you be committed to wrong? Augustine talks about the love of neighbor as self. And he talks about how you can love yourself poorly, right? And if you love yourself poorly, if you're loving your neighbor like you love yourself, you're also loving your neighbor poorly. And so we need to return to scripture, not just to learn that loving your neighbor is what you need to do, but also how to go about doing that, right? You can love bad things, right? You can be committed to something that's wrong. But you need that correction Mm -hmm. to steer you back, to force you to take the correct road. So, yeah. Um, Hang on. And... Just for context on my end, that doesn't mean that my relation, my girlfriend was like wrong. Yeah. yeah. You know, at the time yeah. at least. I, and I totally didn't mean that. I just no, I, you I made understand. that statement and I thought it connected beautifully. No, it does. It definitely does. Because in, in, even in your broader application of the point, right? Um, it was. Well, I, I would have been loving her, essentially, wrong. Yeah. Because I, I, that's what I found out. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't love her. I wanted the relationship. Yeah. That's what I loved. I loved being in a relationship. And that's what I wanted. That was my God. Yeah. That was at the top of the hierarchy, as Peterson would say. Mm-hmm. So it functioned as God for me. Yeah. Right? It was the thing that I was striving for, to keep and to save the relationship. Well, okay, I think at some level in marriage, you are committed. You have made that commitment. That's why you wear the rings. That's why you have the ceremony. Got it right there. Right? Because you are committed. But what are you committed to? What do you stand there and save house for? Do you, Daniel? Take Bethany. Not do you, Daniel, take this marriage. Yeah. Yeah. To be your what? Your lawfully wedded wife. Wife. 
to have and to hold in sickness and in health. It's commitments to the other person, person for yeah. better or for or worse. worse, richer or poorer. No matter what goes wrong. So, This is from the very end of the chapter, and this is what, this is the phrase I could never get out of my head when I finished reading it. If your life is not what it could be, try telling the truth. If you're killing desperately to an ideology or wallow in nihilism, try telling the truth. If you feel weak and rejected and desperate and confused, try telling the truth. In paradise, everyone speaks the truth. That's what makes it paradise. And I was living in hell. Yeah. Because I wasn't telling the truth. And when I told the truth, it was hard. I hated it. But I felt so free. Yeah. So the truth will really, truly set you free. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, in paradise, everyone tells the truth. That's why it's called paradise. Yeah. Because hell is where all the lies are. Yeah. But anyway, yes, you are absolutely correct. So I don't, that's to go back to our loneliness conversation. That's part of the reason I'm so, to get really personal for a moment, that's why I'm so hesitant or leery even of my own emotions yeah when things first start with somebody because i'm like "Hmm, how do i really feel am i cutting through the fields to get to this destination or am i actually walking on the path yeah so we veered a little bit but keep keep going if we can keep us no no um that was it for that section i think we can keep going with the video um because i think he has some good things to say at the end and then i have a paper i can reference if we have time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I can give my final comments on our cynicism. If a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, points at his New World translation, and tells you in an airy voice that God impressed on his heart, that the grammar of John 1 1 doesn't say Jesus was God, but you assert on the same emotional grounds that it says the opposite, how can this stalemate be broken? Clearly, in order to sort out interpretive disputes, it has to be possible to appeal to objective things like Greek and Hebrew grammar, lexical study, historical cultural analysis, and ancient manuscript analysis. Reality doesn't care about your spiritual feelings. Using the Holy Spirit as Spit Shapiro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ben S. As an excuse for reading journal articles or a commentary isn't going to help you understand why the wheels in Ezekiel's vision were covered in eyeballs. Or what on earth Peter is getting at when he says in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus, quote, preached to the spirits in prison and the act of his crucifixion. It won't help you uncover why Paul says women should wear head coverings specifically because of the angels in 1 Corinthians 11. 
or what the baptism of the dead is in 1 Corinthians 15. That method won't reveal to you why Moses' wife in Exodus 4 saved Moses' life from the wrath of God by touching his feet with his son's freshly severed foreskin, pronouncing him a, quote, bridegroom of blood. Talk about all those are very weird, but especially the last one. Yeah. What? Yeah. I need that John Tron cut. What? What the? Maybe I'll put it in here. I'll just find it and do it. Oh, that'd be um, fun. We, I think we need to have our discussion about First Corinthians 11, by the way. Yeah, at some point. That's not now. I was going to have time, but yeah, at some point. You can pray for God to supernaturally reveal to you the meaning of all these passages all you want. But barring a miraculous exception to the Holy Spirit's usual role, the answer will not be found in that manner. Unspiritual? I claim the opposite. Expecting God to supernaturally drop the Greek clause structure or historical context of a passage into your lap without having to lift a finger to actually study it is like expecting God to supernaturally give you money, a healthy marriage, or a good exam grade without actually working for that either. The same all goes for John 16.13, which 3AM televangelists like to invoke when they're peddling slick theology. When John has Jesus telling the disciples in that verse the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, the context refers to the disciples applying the memory of Christ's teachings for the establishment of the church. The Johannine expert Urban von Valde, professor emeritus of Loyola University Chicago, comments, When we look at the Greek grammar in that verse, quote, The reading favored by scholars would not assert that the Spirit will teach them all truth, but that his teaching will be in all truth, that is, will stand completely in the truth, end quote. It's not legitimate to imply from passages like this that the Holy Spirit gives you immediate access without study of specialized resources to all the technical information or theological knowledge that you want concerning the Bible. Nor does it suggest that everything in the Bible even can be understood given our present state of knowledge. This brings me to a second implication. Christians often assume that pastors or theologians, who are especially virtuous, will, as a result of their godliness, be excellent sources for interpreting Bible passages that are culturally or linguistically abstruse. So, how should we understand Genesis 1-1? Let's consult Thomas Aquinas, who couldn't even read Hebrew. What do the gods mention in Psalm 82? A man as intimate with the Holy Spirit as John Calvin must know. Why does God speak in the plural when he says, let us make man in our image? If anyone's figured it out, surely a holy guy like Luther would know. Of course, I've chosen all these examples because they're all cases where we can prove that these men got it wrong. Certainly not through some moral fault or spiritual or intellectual deficiency, but simply because they lack grammatical and archaeological extratextual data that's only been discovered after the 20th century for the most part. This is something that I wish theology nerds, especially seminary students, would get. The golden age of biblical interpretation that I wish the... That's only been discovered because they certainly not through some moral fault or spiritual or intellectual deficiency, but simply because they lack grammatical and archaeological extratextual data. That's only been discovered after the 20th century for the most part. Did you say in the Rob Bell sermon about extratextual resources? What was the word you kept using? Enriching. What do they yeah. do, Daniel? Do what? Say, say the phrase that you kept saying. Oh, I'm, I mean, if it's the phrase I think you're referencing, these things don't change the, the meaning mm -hmm. of scripture. They enrich our understanding to help us better navigate what's going on. And ultimately, you go back to SOAP method, help us apply it to our lives. Mm -hmm. But if we keep thinking about it in this abstract, extra spiritual way, it doesn't 
it's it's flat. It's not enriched in, in any way, shape, or form. Is that what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. This is something that I wish theology nerds, especially seminary students, would get. The golden age of biblical interpretation wasn't with the patristic fathers. It wasn't with Augustine. It wasn't with Calvin, Luther, the Puritans, or the founding of your denomination. After the opening of the 19th century, no one on earth could read Egyptian hieroglyphs. The great Mesopotamian libraries, like the vast majority of the over 130,000 cuneiform tablets currently sitting in the British Museum basement, remain buried in the desert until the middle of that century, and we've only yet translated a fraction of them. George Smith didn't translate and publish the Babylonian creation epic until 1876. It would be nearly 50 years before the French began excavating the library at Ugarit or we gained our associated intimate knowledge of Baal worship, the primary religion that the Bible polemicizes against. The Dead Sea Scrolls wouldn't even be discovered until the end of World War II. It took astonishingly long before they were published, and contrary to what your Sunday school teacher may have told you, the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't match perfectly with the 1,000-year-old later medieval manuscripts that Old Testament translators have been using, particularly in books like Samuel and Jeremiah. It was only recently that high-resolution infrared images of the Dead Sea Scrolls have been made available worldwide to anyone with an internet connection, or the same has been done with thousands of ancient New Testament texts by the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Using computerized linguistic databases, modern biblical scholars can even run syntax searches across the entire body of biblical and other ancient texts that would have been prohibitive for someone before the 20th century to conduct by hand. All of this is to say... The golden age of biblical interpretation is now. I'm not saying that we shouldn't study church history to gain perspective in our interpretations from the democracy of the dead. I'm merely pointing out that they didn't have access to the hundreds of thousands of lines of textual and iconographic context for the Bible that have been and are currently being discovered by modern archaeology. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Holy Spirit didn't supernaturally zap that information into their heads because that's not his usual role barring literal miracles. It turns out moral virtue is independent of the ability to conduct historical linguistic analysis of iron. How arrogant of us to imagine that that would be the model, right? That the Holy Spirit will just zap us with all of this knowledge. That way we can look at the Bible, quote unquote, correctly. Um, and as we were talking about in our um, in our interpreting the Bible as art, that was also based on Augustine. Right? We talked about how we can't know what one interpretation is correct. And so, in a different sermon, um, Augustine gives examples of multiple interpret possible interpretations of a psalm. I think it's he's exposing. Psalm 140, or no, not 140. That's this one, uh, Psalm 40. Um, and he gives multiple interpretations of, of what's going, what could be going on. He says, um, this could be a Psalm that's spoken by God about the divine son, or it could be a Psalm spoken by the prophet inspired by God, or it could actually switch voices. This part could be God speaking and this part could be the prophet speaking. And he never actually answers, like gives a definitive what he thinks is the correct interpretation. He leaves the question open-ended because he thinks that all of those interpretations are possible and they all represent the truth in some way. 
but because they're all representing a truth found elsewhere in scripture. But he's not sure which one to go with because he doesn't have enough data to like back it up. And so he's very humble in saying it could be this one, it could be this one, it could be that one. I don't know. And now in this golden age of biblical interpretation, we have access to more data than he did. And I don't think we can necessarily answer that question, although I do think scholars have perspectives on that question. Um, but all of that to say, the, he's humble enough to admit that there are multiple possible interpretations that are legitimate and that um, we can't know exactly which one is the correct one. And so we should be okay dealing with that ambiguity as, as people. We should be humble enough to recognize that. And if we have conflicting agree, like opinions about it, we, sh- we can agree to disagree, we can argue back and forth, but we should be humble enough to admit that we can't ultimately know the answer. You want to make your finish your rant about seminary and cynicism, or do you yeah. have any other points to make before you do that? Um, the, last, the last point I was going to make about his uh, statements about golden, I do agree. We're yeah. in the golden age of, yeah, at least access to other information surrounding yes. the Bible, yes, that can help us get a better perspective on the world in which the Bible was produced, yeah. And I say all that deliberately. That is not to say that those are all then, like people would claim about the Holy Spirit, magic keys to which we can automatically then have the correct interpretation. Yeah. But like Augustine would say, we maybe then have more and better parameters for, and look, like we've discussed, I'm a canon guy and I'm as much as you can in terms of the divine accommodation conversation, a at least authorial world, let's put it that way. What's the yeah. world of the author look like in the production of this book or this text? It doesn't, yeah. isn't always clear. That's why, again, there's debates about how many people were involved in writing the book of Isaiah, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Is there one, two, three Isaiahs? How do you separate them and why? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I guess all that is to say, I don't, he's not, I wouldn't say he's claiming this either, that these are somehow just the Dead Sea Scrolls are a magic key then yeah. for us. You know, once you, once you get enough scholarly resources, you're Thanos and you have all the, all the infinity stones, yeah. right? There is no, oh, I totally agree. There is no snap for yeah. the, scholar which is why part of this just proves to me the enduring nature of the bible and the complexity of the bible yeah we've spent five six thousand years trying to understand this thing the Hebrew people as the people of god and those who had these stories and then wrote them down and then the Christians in the early centuries and the Jews and the, all the rabbis and the teachers and the scribes and the, like we're all in this exercise of trying to figure this thing out. Right. Yeah. And this isn't to say we have 
more we have magic keys now because we can get into that world better but what it does mean is that just like in, in in the example i gave earlier you can read Dostoevsky in English all you want. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But don't tell me that you sitting down and learning a little bit of Russian and then reading him in Russian isn't going to, as the rabbis would describe it, turn the gem a little bit. Yeah. So you'll see it a little differently. You might catch something else yeah. that you didn't catch before. Mm-hmm. And then that can then affect Oh, wait, if I, and we'll, we'll get to this later in the summer when we talk about eschatology, but um, oh, so I think differently about this thing here because of something that I just learned. So that affects, yeah. oh my gosh, that affects this and that. I might have to ask more questions about this thing because now I've changed my mind about this and this is a little bit different over here now. Yeah. Again, takes humility. Yeah. So there's no magic keys, right? Yeah. There's no genie in the bottle, right? The, it's, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Hammurabi Code or any of like these, you know. Yeah. Robin Williams R.I.P. isn't going to like pop out and and give us all our wishes for yeah. the correct interpretation. This is part of the humility Augustine's talking about. Yeah. But again, I, it's dumb to discount them. It really yeah. is. Yeah. And like I keep saying, I'm going to frame it in the negative again, but you wouldn't do that with anything else. Yeah. Really. So I showed you a video earlier of a guy, of a video a guy made chronicling the plot of Dune Messiah. And he opens the video with words from Frank Herbert about his intention in writing the story. Oh, no, no, no. Those interviews with him don't matter because we all we need is the, the book. It doesn't. And just how I interpret it. No, 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 no. Understanding what Frank was trying to do, his explicit words about what he was trying to accomplish and telling that narrative. You tell me that doesn't help in extracting meaning <laughs> from yeah. these stories. Really? Okay, so reading the Dead Sea Scrolls and understanding this Qumran community and all the ways in which they interpret the Bible, right or wrong to us, right? Doesn't help us engage with the scriptures. And I keep using that example partially because one of the professors at my school is the reason we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way. Wow. Uh, he like basically went behind the backs of a lot of the, a lot of the people involved because they were like, no, 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 we're going to keep them. We're going to put them in a museum. And he was like, no, everyone should have access to this. And he literally like WikiLeaks, like publish wow. them online. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so you can, that was my kind of finishing statement. So I still have two or three things that I want to cover real quick. If we've got time. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, So if you're good. Yeah. I'm good for probably another 23 ish minutes. Um, So um, Augustine uses historical context as well to check himself. Um, now, what's interesting about that is, um, and I believe I've talked about my theory of like how truth is kind of a fractal. Truth nests within itself in relationships of subjective and objective. Um, 
to smaller and greater degrees. And so we can recognize, um, you know, I use the term truth is relational, right? It's about the relationship between the observer and the observable world. And the more factors you consider, the more clear the truth becomes, but you can't always know the objective truth because only God sitting at the top of everything can look down and see everything that is objectively true at once. And so you're always uncertain, which is what I think, where I think this humility from Augustine comes. Well, Augustine has this interpretation. He actually uses intertextuality, actually, to interpret a line in um, one of the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 121. It talks about um, the Jerusalem that is being built. And he says that, well, when David was writing this psalm, Jerusalem had already been built and David actually conquered it. And so that can't mean the, the physical Jerusalem. It has to be referring to this heavenly city. And Peter talks about the temple that's being built with us as living stones. And so he connects these two verses and interprets them in conversation. It's a really in interesting intertextual move. Um, but what's interesting about that is that it's kind of assuming a few things with historical context, right? He's using the historical critical method to make this intertextual link. But now we, with more, um, with the tools of historical criticism and genre criticism and things like that, we actually don't think that David wrote that particular psalm. And thus that changes the way that we interpret the psalm a little bit. Now, what is also interesting, right, is that the end of his sermon is about, you know, loving God and loving neighbor and all of that. Like, it's all building to, to the point, the crucial point of, of the Christian teaching, right? And it's building that point up in some way. And so we would, we would say that he inadvertently and unknowingly took the wrong path, right? Because now we would correct him and, and go on a, a different path the same thing that we were talking about with him earlier. Um, but he's very interested in, he reads Christ into the Psalms a lot, as though the, the Psalms are being spoken by Christ, which is interesting. But again, he's interested in using the historical critical method in correcting and like grounding his allegory of Christ speaking the Psalms. Um, and so I, I think that's really interesting. Another thing that I am exploring in a paper that I think is very relevant to the ways in which we interpret scripture and then preach from it is the distinctiveness of the message being presented and the method of presenting that message. I think those are two different things. Now, they're definitely related, but they're two different things. The message is the truth trying to be um, delivered, right? The truth that the speaker is trying to deliver or the writer, right? So for Augustine, that's usually, and he would argue, and I would argue that for all of scripture, that message is love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the fundamental truth and everything is footnote to that, right? The method differs greatly depending on the book, right? from the Psalms to the Proverbs to Leviticus to Genesis to the epistles to the gospels, the genre of the literature changes 
and the method being used to communicate truth changes. And it's designed to be persuasive to the audience and to entertain the audience to some degree, to help them engage this truth from different angles, like that diamond being turned, right? And what's interesting, um, Jacob of Sarug, who is a Syriac-speaking uh, preacher, I want to say a little after Augustine, or maybe it was a little before, I can't remember, somewhere in a few hundred years around Augustine. Um, actually, I think he was before, yeah. But um, he preaches in long poems. Now, that would probably make a lot of modern congregations uncomfortable, because we don't see poetry is a super effective and precise and scientific way of demonstrating truth, right? But remember, message and method are not connected, right? You can have a message that is derived from an interpretation of scripture, and you can have the method you use to interpret that scripture. His message is usually there's the macrocosm story and the microcosm story happening in the Gospels. Jesus healing the woman hunched over is Jesus is representation of Jesus healing all of creation. And I'd say that's true, right? That's part of the gospel story. And he does it in long, eloquent poetry, you know, 600 lines or so of it. And, but it's, it's a weird method that we would feel most of us would feel uncomfortable with, but he's teaching a true thing something that we would find elsewhere in scripture and most Christians would agree with. And so I think we also, when it comes to interpretation, we need to think critically about not just the ways the Holy Spirit helps us with interpretation, the ways that um, the like scholars and looking at historical evidence and genre and all of that can help with interpretation. But we also need to recognize that the way we communicate that interpretation has pluses and minuses and in communicating things just in a rote essay or in a podcast or in poetry or, you know, other ways of communicating are, they have different strengths and different weaknesses. And I think at least I, before taking several classes, was a bit critical of, um, of the ways in which we, like th those other ways in which we communicate, not the expositional sermon, right? I think I was critical because I think most of the people that venture into the other avenues take a different message than I would. And so because I was seeing the method used to portray a message that I disagreed with, I conflated the two. But what's interesting, if I said hellfire and brimstone sermon, what do you think? That's a method, right? What do you think the message usually is there? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, usually to try to sway a conversion or to, in our context, press a certain sexual ethic. That's also one that I think commonly, one way that um, Hellfire and Brimstone sermons commonly get used. Well, um, John Chrysostom, an early church preacher, and Basil the Great, another early church preacher, 
both used hellfire and brimstone sermons like Jesus did to preach messages of generosity, which is very different, right? We have the method and we have a different message than it's normally communicated. So as I was reading them, I was very uncomfortable with their method because I don't really like hellfire and brimstone sermons. But their message of generosity was intriguing. And I disagreed with some of the economics behind it and yada, yada, yada. But I, I thought it was a very interesting and compelling example because it shows the, the separation between the two and how they we can easily assume that certain things go together because that's all we've ever seen. But really, if you go to a different place in a different time, Things can be communicated in ways that are similar to us, but it can be a very different message. So I think that's something that's good to understand when it comes to interpretation and then presentation of an interpretation. So I wanted to make sure that we covered that um, in, in some detail here. If you have any comments on that, um, and then I'll go on my last little rant. Going to make it in. So... In terms of message method, uh, I'll use a contemporaneous example for different styles. Um, I had two, but I forgot one. Oh, uh, I'll say this because this leads to my second example. My professor, my New Testament professor, has said this a few times, and I think it's very interesting and well worth thinking about. When he said he went to Harvard for his um, for his master's, and one of his homiletics professors always said, "You preach for the ear, not or yeah, you preach for the ear, not for the eye," which I think is great yeah. because it because it emphasizes the fact. The people are hearing you more often than reading you when you tell when you do a sermon. Yeah. Part of the performance, the art of homiletics, right? Which is part of the reason that I'm curious and intrigued about becoming a good lecturer. So I would say the same thing. When you lecture, when you teach, more often than not, you lecture for the ear and not for the eye, right? You'd be writing an essay if you were lecturing for the eye. And we all know that those take different forms. When you write a screenplay, you're writing for the screen, not necessarily for the eye. So I have Is your counter ready? Because there's another one. I have the book that Tarantino wrote, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it has extra stuff in it from the movie, as they would. And this isn't a critique of the goal, because Tarantino said what inspired him to write it was all the... You don't get this as much nowadays, although you still get it some. But... Uh, the first one I remember reading was the book that was made out of Daredevil, the 2001 movie mm. with Ben Affleck. Um, but you would always get a, if the movie didn't already have a novel, and sometimes even if it did, 
you would get a novelization of the movie. It would be yeah. an expansion, basically, of the screenplay. Well, Tarantino, even he does say this, that he writes his movies more like novels, which is akin to why his movies look the way they do. Thinking Glorious Bastards is probably the best example. It's literally the movie is broken up into chapters. Same thing with, um, uh, oh my gosh, the the cowboy, the cowboys and the sheriff in the Civil War. Um, I'll remember it in a second. Am I even a fan? Um, but my point is, his book, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, reads like a screenplay. His prose are fine but he ain't going to know when any Pulitzer prizes. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit let down. Cause I was like, man, I would think with the way, cause the, sorry, but the thing that, that made me mad about it is that the dialogue is, it's different when you see someone perform his dialogue and he's actors will talk again and again about, he doesn't do ad libs. No, I wrote it that way. That's the way you do it. Yeah. And he'll coach him through how he wants him to say it. Because he writes like poetry, which is why his dialogue is amazing. Mm -hmm. But in his book, it doesn't read the same. And even how scenes are set up and his descriptions of things, it's again, it's not bad. It's just not at the level of uh, that I thought he could attain with a novel. Now, he's spoken that his goal was to write a novelization of a movie because that's literally what he's doing. And what inspired him was those old novels of the books that were movies. Yeah. So in that case, I guess it accomplished its goal. I'm really curious what's going to happen when he writes something that has not already been made into a movie. Yeah. But point is, he has he's written a certain way for all his life because of the message on screen mm -hmm. that eventually comes. So I think for him, who am I to judge? But it might take a minute for him to get some of that out of his system as a writer yeah. just yeah. because he's done it for 30 years you know mm -hmm. uh so that's my long-winded put it on the ticker but yeah message and method distinction method and message and how even for people who are really good at one it can be a little more difficult to be great i use that term yeah. real like great at another he's not a great novel writer he is an amazing screenwriter and director and his novels read a little bit like screenplays, which is fine, but it's not. Yeah. It's just not at the level of other people. So, but it's his first, so I can't judge too hard. Yeah. All right. You can go on your final rant. Okay. I got, so, I got my Tarantino in there. There you go. We had, I mean, it had to happen at some point. So uh, I'm glad I did. Now, um, back to our cynicism. In thinking about preparing for today's podcast and in listening to um, our recently released conversation about our cynicism, I started thinking about the ways, like why we are so cynical when it comes to certain aspects of popular Christianity and regular church and things like that. And I think it's, like I said before, I think it comes from the fact that all these interpretive methods that we've been talking about aren't actually practiced by pastors when they preach and by churches when they, for the most part. 
and, and by churches when they talk about interpretation and things like that. Bible study groups, small Bible groups. study groups, small groups. I mean, we've talked ad nauseum about that. And so I, I don't have to say much more. I just want to point to that now that we're at the end of this whole thing about interpretation. Um, and to, to build on that just slightly, something you said earlier, uh, I think is very true, is that good, good sermons preach to multiple levels of your audience. And I think most sermons, at least that I've engaged, only preach to the bottom rung of understanding, maybe a few levels above in a congregation about, you know, depth within the Bible. And one thing that's been very unsatisfactory for me is now studying a lot, it's hard to find sermons that go past that just basic understanding. And so I think that's where part of my cynicism, cynicism comes. But I also think part of my cynicism comes from, um, and I think this whole idea of Augustine's that there can be multiple correct understandings and we're not exactly sure which one is correct. And you and I tend to emphasize the historical critical method and things like that. But there's a wide range of artistic potential interpretations that are possible. I think I need to be, and I won't speak for you, but I think I need to be a little bit more humble when approaching sermons that are outside the range of the historical critical method and don't use the tools that I'm trained to use, though I think that they should use them more, um, as Augustine did, right? But I think I should be a little bit more humble in my critiques and in my cynicism because they might have some valuable things to say too, approaching the same text from a different angle of the diamond, right? Turning it just slightly. With that said, I also think that we need more well-developed deep sermons. And so I don't think that our cynicism cynicism is unwarranted either. I think that there's a great disservice being done to people in pews or, you know, chairs who have gone deeper and want that from the pulpit too. And so most of this I've said before, but I think now that we're at the end, it's appropriate to say again and to recognize that more depth is needed for certain people. And there are people, I think young Christians too, who want that depth, who aren't getting it because we are so focused on this base level, get everyone in, convert them. And we do nothing. It's no discipleship. It's just flip a switch conversion and hope it pans out. That's it. And I'll say, just to end it in, in a minute or two, part of why I'm excited for this conversation and have enjoyed having it, and I think it's an important conversation to have, is not only because it ties directly to what we talked about last week with, yeah. as we've seen throughout this whole video from Ben and from your readings of Augustine, your, your view on the inspiration of Scripture is directly going to impact impact how you interpret it and what you think its purpose is, yeah. right? All the sort. Keep in mind all the sources that Ben has pulled from of incorrect interpretations, at least for this video, are all very 
very conservative, most young earth creationist interpretations that hold to, like I said last week, a very divine view of interpretation. And they must because they have certain views about creation itself, even in the stories in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, there's as many critiques that could be laid at the far other end of the spectrum as well as when it comes to biblical interpretation. But then also keep in mind, as you pointed out earlier, that even the people who are critiquing this method of interpretation are also all the all the sources he pulled, at least from the video, are fairly conservative voices, conservative to moderate, maybe like the fuller quote, maybe, but all the rest come from very yeah. conservative institutions. And so that is to say that all does not speak, one does not speak for the whole group, right? These are not a monolith. And to say that it is, if we're going to tell young Christians this book, and we're going to proclaim be a people of the book, people who follow Jesus, but people who care about the book, let's say, and tell them this book is so important that it is worth a lifetime of study, then why would you ever dissuade someone from studying it? Yeah. And why would you, the Christian who proclaims that you love the Bible so much, and hopefully you do, that it would be not worth, perhaps, that 20 minutes while you drive to work or that 10 minutes before you go to bed. It's hard to steal an hour. It's really hard. But I bet you can find five to 10 minutes. And that's all it takes, five to 10 minutes every day. And so for those who want to go deeper, for those who, who want some more of those keys to help unlock like I said, they're not golden keys. They're not going to give you every single interpretation throughout the whole book. There's reasons that certain passages specifically are debated over and over and over again in scholarship. And then things about words, we find out new information or things about cultural context, we find new information. And then those interpretations can change. And we need to have the humility for those to change. But if you want access to more of those keys, then that same spirit, that we pray to the Holy Spirit to discern the other spirits. When we open the Bible, we can pray and ask for the same thing when we go and look for resources to understand what is being said in the Bible. And that's what I really want. I don't want people to be scared because I also think, and maybe this is worth another episode or at least partial discussion at some point in the future, but why is why there is such a fear to use Christian language and language Marty would use such a fear to wrestle with the text? Yeah. I think that's part of what it comes down to. Oh, mm -hmm. if I wrestle with this, then I'm I am denying the divine word of God. No, 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 no. Not at all. You are participating with the patriarchs in the example that they lay before us. I gave the example the other week about Abraham wrestling with God face to face about the salvation of Sodom and questioning the judgment of the God 
that he has given his life to. And in the same way, when Jacob wrestles with the angel, what, what does he say? Let go of me. No, no, no. I'm not going to let go of you. Why? Until, until you do what? I'm not going to let bless go until me. you do what? Until you bless me. Okay, God. This thing about Paul and hair in 1 Corinthians 11 is really weird. The Mennonites and the Amish seem to have some thing about head coverings. Or, hey, what about that story in Exodus? Moses and his wife. And Hey, so there's a certain way that Jesus is talking in this parable. There's a certain way that Paul talks about salvation. God, I'm going to, why don't, why don't we pray that? God, I'm going to sit. This is real. You can sit on the edge of your bed to use Peterson. You can sit on the edge of your bed and do this. But when we arrive and say, hey, God, I'm really going to, I'm wrestling with this. I don't understand it. But I'm going to pray to you, God, let me wrestle with this until I find something, until you reveal the treasure to me. And maybe that I'm using language of like, Holy Spirit's going to give you whatever. Sure. But maybe the whole, as, as in our thoughts about inspiration, Maybe when you Google something, someone else was prompted to make something years ago and post it or write it. And through the Holy Spirit, you are guided to find it. Like I gave in my example, I maybe never would have figured something out if Jordan Peterson never wrote rule, 12 Rules for Life. He didn't write it for me, but maybe in some sense he did. So, so let's trust the same spirit that we trust when we sit and open the Bible to help us apply it to our lives and reveal truth to us, which I think can happen. And I don't discount God speaking to us or God giving us nudges or impressing things upon us, but let's trust that same spirit to discern the tools that we use to interpret the Bible and ask for that same humility and have that spirit and the ability the humility to wrestle with the bible and not let it go until we get the blessing or we find something that helps us get an answer yeah king commies look out tell them look out for my worldview cloudy when you sinking got you thinking it's a whirlpool caesar in your pockets you can't see who's in your pockets but stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move wifey bob her head and make her curls move crown jewel is character and this ain't immortality with fairy dust never land never say i never gave you hands if i can't give them back then you look like the lesser man